Hello, and welcome to another edition of Carvel on Talks. I'm Doll, and today I'm joined by Diana and Thad for the first of our Wheel of Time on Prime rewatch episodes. Today we'll discuss Season 1, Episode 1 of The Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime. A quick note before we dive in. We will try to keep the bulk of our episodes spoiler-free past books 1 and 2 of the series, but we will spend a portion of the end talking about foreshadowing and spoilers in each episode of our discussion. All right. Do we want to dive on in? Yeah, I think we should. We should start with the cold open. I should define, I think, at the top what a cold open is, because I'll probably talk about them a lot. A cold open in any show is the scene that happens before the opening credits. And we don't actually get like the full opening credits in episode one, but we do get the spinny snake tarongriol. The cold open was Maureen talking about the breaking and the dragon, right? Mm-hmm. And then Leandrin and the red Aja. Okay, I have notes here and I couldn't remember where the opening was. Notes? What are we, some kind of professional podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. Are you getting paid? Only with love and affection, which is my favorite currency. <sighs> Except that doesn't pay the mortgage. True. But it pays the soul. True. So I have a fun story, actually, about episodes one and two. Fenya and I saw them at the fan premiere in San Francisco because we're both in the Bay Area. I went to D.C. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Doll, but when they showed the beginning of episode one, we had the music and we had uh, like the audio for Moiraine talking about the breaking and Luz Theron. But we didn't have audio for the Leandrin scene. Oh, no. And that scene makes no sense without audio. We were like, who are these two men? It was crazy. Like no speaking audio for it? No, none. That must have been a technical issue. Yeah. They paused it once the like credit or the Terangriel came up and then to, like fixed the audio, but they didn't go back. So I didn't know what happened in that scene. And I was so confused. <laughs> hmm. It's really confusing when the guy disappeared. It's like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So I, in my notes, I, I wrote, just wrote down Maureen talking about the breaking and the dragon reborn and their search for him and blah, blah, blah. And Leandrin charging down random man who can channel, who's delusional. We also see the um, fat man, Tara, or Angriel, that she gets to Rand in episode eight, which I thought was nice. We did? Yeah, it's like the Le- Moiraine like holds it in her hand and then covers it over with um, fabric as part of her getting dressed portion, which is a, a nice like little touch. I remember that specifically, but I didn't even make the connection that that was the little fat man. I missed that. How many times have I watched this episode now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much. Like, honestly, there's so much packed into every single one of these episodes. It's why I love the show so much. It's like... People complain about like, oh, it's so different from the books, but they really do try to pack a ton of Easter eggs in. They really do. Like, there are so many little details. Yeah. Like, my favorite detail from this cold open is, which I've talked about before, but it's that the towers and the overgrown ruins that we see as they're like pulling back is the city that we see at the end of the episode eight cold open, which is such a nice parallel. There's, oh, like, so beautiful. That's like the kind of detail that tells you that you had a plan to begin with. Like, we were going to show this from the beginning. We're not just going through and making it up as we go. Yeah, absolutely. Did Leandra gentle that man? Oh, yeah. We don't see it on screen, but there's no doubt. Because they talk about it later. Yeah, they're supposed to, on orders, take all men who can channel to the tower. But we don't ever see this guy again. So we can only assume that either they killed him or gentled him. Yeah, they mention it 
in a later episode that there are rumors of Radija going up and down the countryside, gentling men without authorization. Yeah. And that's what I assume here because, you know, the big kerfuffle in later episodes about that specifically. Yeah. About another person that we won't talk about just yet. I, I think we can probably spoil the oh, okay. show. Yeah. Because this is a rewatch pod. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am not going to be able to talk about anything if I can't spoil the show. Yeah. Okay. If you haven't watched the show, please turn us off and go watch the show and come back. I mean, why, why are you here if you haven't read the books or watched the show? I mean, the, the name of the podcast episode is a specifically rewatch. So. Yeah. Rewatch with us. This is your second time, at least, or fourth or fifth, if you're me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times I've watched. I've lost count. <laughs> yeah. You're right. It comes up again when they gentle Loghain, which was somewhat justified. In, in that specific instance, yeah. I hate to agree with Leandrin, but yeah, we are jumping way ahead. Yeah, we'll get there when we get to episode four. So we'll go back. You know, at that point, we see Moraine at the top of the tower and she just goes, it's not him. It's too old. And Lan looks so annoyed when he says, where next? And she says, the two rivers. He does this amazing eyebrow arch and he's just so, you can tell he's so tired. Let land sleep. Yeah, but I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere and or like the far, far end of button up against the mountains. They're as far out from like civilization as they can be at this point. Or maybe maybe not in the instance of where they're at, where Leandrin found that man who can channel. But, you know, by the time you hit the two rivers, that's middle of nowhere. Sticks. The boonies. We don't get the full opening credits with the music and everything in this episode. After the cold open and the snake symbol, we cut straight to Egwene's initiation into the Two Rivers Women's Circle. A very cool scene. What is the point of throwing Egwene in the river? Like, the scene is cool and fun, but in all honesty, what was the point in shoving her without warning? She has to surrender to the river. You can't surrender unless you are almost dying, apparently. But, like That's also a good way to set somebody up for trust issues and trauma. Here, we love you. And then shove. I'm going to throw you off a cliff into a river. The crazy thing to me about that scene is that's actually Madeline. Oh, God, I'm not going to remember how to say her last name. Madden, I think is her Maiden. last name. Yeah, Maiden. That's actually her. That's not a stunt double. They literally had Zoe like just yeet her off a cliff. <laughs> To 30 feet of water below. Insane. It looks like fun. It's probably cold. I mean, it's visually appealing for the show. Yeah. I guess it's better than them all sitting around in inside someone's house talking about it. It's just more visually impactful. I don't really have anything more than that. I mean, that, that's not something that was stated in the books. Like, we didn't see this. It absolutely was not, yeah. We just know that Egwene's hair was braided when Rand saw her when he came into town for Beltane. And she hadn't before, so she must have had some sort of induction. There's a lot of interesting details in the women's circle ceremony that I don't think make it into the show, but I think we're in the script. They filmed more. Yeah, there, there's the deleted scene at least. Yeah, they've filmed so much. They've released the deleted scene of Egwene in the pool. And as much as I love that scene, I'm actually okay with them deleting it because it involves her getting covered in the colors of the Ajaz from the Aes Sedai. My theory is that the colors are associated with something like what's in the ritual, which I think is, I can't remember what it is. Um, and that's where the Ajah colors come from. And the two rivers with its old blood remembers the old reasons, but doesn't make the connection to the Ajahs. But I think it would be way too confusing for show-only people. It's an interesting thought, but like the Ajahs from before the current tower were not a set thing. Like, 
Aja's were working groups. So they were groups of Aes Sedai that get together for a project and they may be temporary. They weren't like associated with a specific trait or something. You join like a fraternal society. They were just working groups. And it wasn't until after the breaking when they formed this sorority, basically, and created the mini groups, like their Hogwarts houses, I guess. Essentially. I feel like in the show logic that there must be some sort of, there must be a connection between the colors and how the Ajahs got those colors. Yeah. It makes sense from a visual theory perspective. Yeah. But I don't mind that they cut it as much as I love that scene. She also gets other women's hair braided into her hair so that she's never alone, which I don't think they've ever, they actually like reference in the show, but it's in the script. It feels like something that would actually exist in the real world. Not that I've ever heard of it, but it seems very likely that it comes from some sort of folk tradition somewhere in the world. Because it is like a, like humans have this way of wanting that physical manifestation of their relationships. And having a piece of somebody's hair braided into your hair is a very visceral connection. I think that's really cool. It also translates very well to a visual medium. And then we cut from Egwene leaving the river to Rand and Tam walking down the mountain. And my only note here is, all in all caps, Rand's fuzzy sweater. Because I love his sweater. I really like that sweater, too. Oh, he looks so cozy. I want that sweater. Oh, I want it. I don't wear sweaters. I'm allergic to wool and... I get really hot, but... But you still want that sweater, huh? Yeah, there's really nothing about that sweater that I would actually want, but it looks really good on Rand, and it looks really cozy. So, more power to him. I also, I can't... Wool is so itchy, so I'll, like, I see it, and I'm like, ah, it looks itchy, but also so cute. So fuzzy. Yes, very itchy. I would be very, very itchy, and very, very red, and possibly not breathing, so... (laughs) Well, we don't want that. Yeah. We will skip the anaphylaxis. Thank you. (laughs) My only note was wolves. Oh. Mm -hmm. I wrote that several times. So, yeah, we hear the wolves howling. And the sweet detail of the strawberries, which will be talked about later this episode. Sweet boy, Rand. Okay. So, I'm just going to state up front that Rand in the books drives me bananas, but Rand in the show is the most precious baby angel, and I will defend him at all costs. So I might be obnoxious about Rand. I just love him. Yeah, I think as much as I love Robert Jordan's characters, he wasn't always the best at expressing emotions. And in the book, it often just comes off as annoying. And Yasha does a really good uh, interpretation of those emotions and just making him that sweet, awkward young man who's connected with his emotions, but also strong and masculine at the same time. Like He does a very good job of portraying all of that. He's great. This whole cast yeah. is great. I love. Yeah, the I really cast. do love the cast. Um, Tam, played by the same actor who plays Roose Bolton in Game of Thrones. So that's a hard shift for people who are Game of Thrones fans. I am not. And so I don't have the, associ- the Bolton association with him. I just see Tam. I've but- only seen the first season of Game of Thrones. So I don't even know if he was in that. But I think he does a great job with Tam. I really liked him as Tam. Yeah, he's so good. Oh, he's just, he has the sweet comforting like i just want i want him to give me a hug and tell me everything's gonna be okay i want him to be my dad Mm -hmm. um and then we move on from tam and rand to the inside of the wine spring inn and the coplin and the congar ladies are just having the best time they are all sloshed they are all laughing they're definitely Coplins and Congars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like so many drunk ladies, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
My only note from the wine spring before Maureen's entrance was Matt's gambling, but he's really bad at it. So mm-hmm. he does not have his luck yet. I, yet. I have thoughts and they aren't spoiler free. Yeah, fair. I have Matt's luck in my spoiler notes as well. All right. And then Maureen comes in and everybody's like, Ooh, I said, I. So dramatic. Her and Lan. <laughs> so I ha- there's an incredible post that I read online that talks about how Lan and Maureen must have planned this and done the timing because Lan does not look back before he says, and this is Maureen, and then she walks in. So I have this hilarious like mental image of Maureen being like, all right, Lan, count to five. And then say, and this is Moiraine, and then I will walk in. Because, <laughs> like, it's so perfectly choreographed, so dramatic. This is a complete tangent that reminds me, if you've ever watched Rent, when Tom Collins introduces Angel after they've been talking for, like, 15 minutes, the Angel just sitting in the hallway waiting for him to <laughs> introduce her. Anytime. Anytime now. <laughs> Anytime. I just, I'm not entering until <laughs> I can make my entrance. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> that, that's how i imagined it went down with between those two yep. although you know with the, with the bond they probably could have felt it out too yeah and there's a lot of unspoken conversation between the two of them like we see it in the cold mm-hmm. open we see it here we'll see it elsewhere of them like just having great basically like one-way conversations and then they uh, they like react to yeah. what the other is feeling it's or just so one word like in the bathtub mm-hmm. it could be warmer it could be warmer So when Lan enters, it cuts immediately to Nynaeve, and she's the first one who looks over. And she's the one who challenges him with her hand on the dagger, which I was like, oh, Nynaeve and Lan, first ones interacting. And there's also a lot of like foreshadowing that Egwene is the main character in the first episode, especially because when Moiraine enters, the first person she looks at is Egwene. Not only that, but she's the first Two Rivers person we see right before Nynaeve eats her off cliff i think she was set up to be a little bit of a red herring but i think it's also foreshadowing for the future that we can talk about later yeah i think it's also because rafe judkins is a pretty open and unapologetic egwene that would explain a lot right yeah i'm an egwene fangirl i am fine with it you know a lot of people love egwene and you know even egwene thinks she's the main character true yeah a lot of people hate egwene though she's very she's very divisive egwene grew on me i didn't hate her I was annoyed by her. She is a little bit of a diva. Yeah, diva. She's a pick me girl. She's like the girls in class who always raise their hand and go, pick me, pick me. That's exactly her. And I was that way when I was 14. And I think Egwene's 14 in the books. And I think I started reading these books when I was 15. So I was like right there, which I think is why I love her so much. Their ages have changed a lot. Like mm-hmm. when they originally published, think. She was 16 and the boys were 18. And then they downed their ages when they released Into the Blight and the... Did they? Yes. Yeah, because those were aimed at younger readers. They released them as young adult books. Yeah. And they specifically downed their ages. Like, it wasn't explicit in the others, but they were intended to be older teenagers. They rewrote it slightly. Like, there weren't many changes to it. They added a scene with Tom telling the story to try and sell it as two young adult novels, which I don't think worked very well because young adult fiction that's usually aimed at, you know, early teens and adolescents. And, like, the themes are just a little too old for somebody that young to read all the way through it. Although, I guess by the time they were done reading it, they were 30, so... Can confirm as someone who started reading them when they was when I was fifteen. So I guess maybe I got to do the math on that. Now. I mean, I 
I did. I was 21 when I actually finished reading Eye of the World, and I was 30-something. I don't remember what year that came out now. Yeah, I was, I was 28 when it finished. Because you realize that this the 10-year anniversary of A Memory of Light. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I would have been 32 when the series ended, and I was two years old when it started. So, literally 30. So, it was, was it 2013? I believe the last book came out January 2013. Yeah. So, I would have been 34. So, it's 20 years, because I would have been 23. I would have been 23. Math. Math. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. There's a line where Nynaeve goes up to Perrin and says, where's Layla? Which I was like, why is she asking? Once we know that Nynaeve has a, is convinced that Perrin is pining over Egwene, that line makes so much more sense. Because it's when Rand and Perrin are having a conversation about Egwene. And, but before I was like, who's Layla? Like, there's a lot of like shoehorning of Layla in the first four episodes especially. Oh, yeah. Her. I feel I feel like Gretchen Wiener is just being like, stop trying to make Layla happen. That's my notes on episode one. These are my notes on Layla. For people who can't see, that's a tenth of the page. Like, I <laughs> a lot of thoughts about Layla. Let's dive into Layla. We gotta talk about the Layla. I don't the know. I do not understand where they're going with this. It's a complete unknown entity. She is not in the books. She doesn't exist in the books. No, she's in. She's in, she's mentioned in the books once. I mean, she's mentioned one time. Her name is mentioned, but n- her name is mentioned one time when Perrin goes back to the two rivers, and they mention her, and he goes, "Ah, maybe in a different lifetime," and that's probably where they plucked that thread from. Oh, no, that's a hundred percent. That is explicitly where they got it. Rafe has said that. Yeah, Rafe has confirmed. Yeah. Oh, okay. But that's the only thing in the book. So, like, everything about her is completely made up, and I don't get it. You don't get it in what capacity? Like, I mean, I understand why they did it, because it, it's to drive his character in a very not great way. I Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, I get why they needed a catalyst there. I don't understand why it had to be a wife, and why they're, like... The whole thing, why Why did she not go to the, the ceremony? Was she jealous of Egwene? I think she's jealous of Egwene. I think that's why she doesn't go to the ceremony, which is really lame. <sighs> it doesn't make any sense. There's no motivation. We don't get any background on it. We don't know anything else about her or why she didn't go, why she was being petty. And like, they seem to be implying that she was pregnant at one point. Did they? I could see that when he puts his arms around her and like he's holding her. Puts them specifically on her stomach and she puts her hands on his. And says it's hard to work the forge alone. I hate that scene. Yeah. I I hope she's not pregnant because that makes him killing her even worse. It makes it, oh, the whole thing just makes my skin crawl. Like the first time I watched it, I brushed past it. But every time I've watched it since, everything about it's just like, this does not work. So my quote-unquote justification for Layla is a, is a spoiler conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that despite the fact that I can rationalize why they did it, I hate it. Yeah. And Same. I wish they hadn't done it. It is going to complicate so much in season three because I don't think we're getting... I don't think we're getting a thing we will talk about in the spoiler section in season yeah. two. Yeah, we can go but, further into that later, but yeah. There's yeah. just so much about it. We don't get enough background on why these things are happening or why we should care about this person before Perrin turns around and fridges her, which is just gross. Just it was so incredibly poorly handled, in my opinion. And I well, I think a lot of people 
agree with that too. Like it was just, I don't, I just don't have anything good to say about it. Like the, the, the best thing I can say is it was meant to drive his character motivation forward, but they, there's so many other ways they could have done it better. But it is so lazy. Yeah. Like they could have even made her his sister and done the exact same thing. And had there been not, like, A, we would have cared more because she would have been an Abara by blood. And we care about the Abara family as book readers. And, like, or it could have been his mom. It could have been any other, like, woman in his life or even person in his life, really. Like, it could have been Mistress Luhan. It could have been Master Luhan. I think Master Luhan would have been a bad idea, but that's that's another discussion. We actually had that. Did we already do that discussion? We had that conversation with Finya in the last episode. Okay. Okay, I don't think I've listened to that episode yet. We didn't go all the way into it, but that was on my mind when I was watching. And I still think it would not have been as hard as you think. But just to use that cheap dead wife trope, it was lazy, and if there's one major criticism I have of the series, that's it. Yeah, I agree with that. Even as book readers, we don't care about her. And like, if show watchers are like, who is this random person who Baron killed? That sucks for him. They're show watchers. They'll read the books at some point. They'll get it. But like, it has to hit right for book readers, because it's episode one. We honestly are the ones who are going to be like really diving into this first in the premiere. And you shouldn't have your book readers be like, I don't care about this person who was killed. It has a lot of bad implications without having many good ones. The fridging the wife thing is a trope for a reason because it's a visceral reaction. You immediately know the relationship. You know why you should care about this person. And when it happens, you're just like, (gasps) gut punch. But that's where it ends because they haven't established this character. And I, I just don't see how they're going to create any characterization of this character now that she's already dead that's going to make us care they could have gone for a less cheap punch and it could have been anybody else that Perrin was close to and we wouldn't have even had to have met them just somebody he kills by accident during this fight and we watch him be tormented like it would be tormenting just to know that you accidentally killed somebody when you're trying to defend them period but then we could slowly learn why it's eating him up and that this person was somebody important in his life and it could have developed past the end of the season as a more compelling storyline. But instead, we went for the cheap dead wife. All right. So I had a lot of thoughts. I 100% agree with all of those thoughts. Everybody has a thought about that whole section of this episode. So. Yep. But luckily, we can transition from a relationship we don't care about to a relationship I at least care about a lot in the show, which is Rand and Egwene. I have never shipped Rand and Egwene in the books. My ship for Egwene in the first couple of books is actually Perrin. So when they hinted at that ship in this episode and then like the rest of the season, I was like, okay, (laughs) giving me a little bit. I appreciate it. But oh my God, do I root for them so much in season in the show? Like, and I know what's happening, what's going to come for them. And it makes me so sad, but I'm rooting for them so much in season one. And they do a really good job of that. And especially in the like scene where they're doing the dishes together and he gives her the little strawberry out of his pocket and she's like that was in your pocket why are you giving this to me they're so cute yeah they did make a better case for that relationship than the books did because again robert jordan's not the best at establishing relationships it wasn't in the books it was just literally like we're meant for each other we're just going to be together and they didn't really give more thought to it than that i can almost see that because like when you're in that small of a town and you your trajectory for your life is not 
expected to go past the little village you grew up in. Those childhood relationships are probably the only thing you ever know. So it's like, all right, this is the girl I've been close to my whole life. It's the girl I'm going to marry. And that's it. There wasn't anything compelling for it in the books because it's just a throwaway. Am I just remembering this from the books or did we hear this in this season at all? Some of the people in the village talked about getting Tam a wife because, you know, he lives on his own with Rand. I don't remember. I don't think they talk about that in the show. If it happened in the show, it would have been when Rand and Tam were talking to uh, Egwene's mother. Um, Marin. Marin. Yeah, I don't know, though. I don't remember specifically. I'm probably just remembering that from the books. I know that I remember hearing or reading that somewhere, but I'm just drawing a blank right now. It's definitely in the books. They're constantly trying to get Tam a wife in the beginning of the books, but I don't think they bring it up in the show. The only note that I have about Marin is basically that Marin is like, Egwene, Rand, why don't you guys be alone together? And I was like, good for you, mom, letting your daughter get some. Appreciate get a couple that. of eye pumps out of that. Why don't you go wash the dishes with them? Pump, pump. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like, well, she's grown now. She's ready to get married. And I guess she hadn't talked to her about being a wisdom yet. I know a lot of people had issues with the fact that Rand and Egwene had sex before marriage. I didn't have issues with that. They're 20 years old. Let the kids blink. It's fine. That's a ridiculously prudish attitude because they were like it's not traditional to the two rivers blah 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 like it's it's a change that they made from the book there's there's just some people who like every change they make from the books they're going to scream about but i've seen particular like is it like we don't know that it's not like that's not something that's brought up they're not christians so it's not like there would have been some big stricture against them having relationships i think people are projecting that i think it's because at one point Oh, we have to talk about this in the spoiler section. It has to do with the thing that Nynaeve says to Rand at one point in like book seven. Okay, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We might need to speed it up a little bit because we've talked about like the first 10 minutes of the first episode. I'm sorry, I spent 20 minutes ranting about Layla. No, it's all good. (laughs) Okay, Trolloc Attack. Let's jump forward to the Trolloc Attack. Trolloc Attack was great. I, I, I loved the way they handled it. They looked good. It was like a mix of practical and CG from what I saw. More practical than CG, but you know, when they're swarming and everything, you kind of need more CG for that. One of the behind the scenes things is about how they did it. And those are people running on stilts. The trollocs themselves are practical effects and makeup. They use CG to just take 20 and turn them to 100. Mm. Yeah, they look so good. They're so scary too. The segue into the trolloc attack, it's just that moment because Beltine's going on and it's happy and everything's great. And then all of a sudden a point of a spear or sword comes through this kid's chest and then the barrage happens. Yeah, I'm never ready for it. I'm always just like, oh yeah, Beltine, what a great time to do. I think Wayne's like, I forget his name now, like Tom, Sam, Bill, whatever his name was. I can't remember what his name is. And she's like, what's going on? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. My favorite part of the Trolloc attack is the Trolloc screaming at Nynaeve and Egwene and Nynaeve screaming back. She's so fierce. I freaking loved it when we see Days Conquer come out with a pitchfork and it just starts screaming. And then most of the women's circle just starts going down on one of the Trollocs and it's just ridiculous. I love it. I love that. When Nynaeve screamed at the Trolloc, the theater at the DC showing just erupted. <laughs> yeah, the SF theater did too. It was so good. The channeling, I think thought i like it more every time i see it yeah the first time i saw it i thought it looked a little hokey i don't know if i've just gotten used to it or if like watching it on like just my tv screen versus like a giant screen it looks better now i like it a lot i love when she brings down the inn even though like poor wines bring in but it's so cool 
I wrote down bye bye Winespring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we skipped my least favorite chapter in book one. Yay. So my only question is, you know, after the Trolloc raid comes through, destroys basically the entire town. You're seeing the aftermath of it and everybody's getting patched up and they realize that, hey, the Trollocs are coming for you. So as long as you're here, whatever, you know, we got to get out because everybody else is screwed. And then we see a ton of them pouring over the top of the mountain to come down. The kids in Moraine run off. And it's just like, so did those Trollocs come through the two rivers again and just re-raise it or? No, they, they follow them to Terran Ferry. Yeah. I think they like go out the village kind of like in the direction of the Trollocs to kind of like go to them and then leave them That away. would make the most sense. Because I the, the first time that happened, I was just like, did they just leave the rest of the two rivers to? I mean, we know that that's not the case, but. Uh... It, it was in the books. It was explicit that you have to get out of here. Those Trollocs will come back here. Yeah. I think they rushed the leaving of Two Rivers in the show. It was just like, hey, hey, look, you're the prophesied hero of the world. We don't know which one of you, but we just need to get you out of here. I wish we had gotten the two-hour premiere that Rafe wanted. I would pay money for that two-hour premiere. Yeah, that would have been nice. But, you know, at this point, too, we had seen that Nynaeve gets dragged off into the night by a trollic. Is she dead? Is she not? I guess we'll find out. And then we have the wind quote at the end of episode one, which... I have chills every time I cry, every time. I thought that the wind quote was not going to appear in the show because it's a quote. So it made me very happy. I kind of hope that they end every episode, one of every season with a wind quote. That would be nice. It needs to be a thing. It does need to be a thing because it's a thing in the books. Mm -hmm. Every single book. Let's make it a thing in the show. So now we're going to talk about foreshadowing in episode one. This section is going to contain so many spoilers for the rest of the Wheel of Time book series. If you haven't finished the series, it's been fun. Please turn us off now and join us next time for our discussion of season one, episode two. You have been warned. All right. If you're still here, we're going to spoil everything. Yes. All right. So my very first one is from the cold open. And I have to talk about this because it, it kind of bugs me. What is Moray's motivation for thinking that these kids are tavern. She says there's rumors there's five tavern in the two rivers. What have they done? What in the lives that they have established? And I, I don't mean to be so aggressive with this, but it bugs me. That's fine. Nothing about the life they have established would make rumors of them being tavern. Matt doesn't have any luck. Perrin and Rand have done nothing. Egwene is just a, another candidate for being a wisdom. As far as you can tell, there's nothing that's necessarily pulling people here. In New Spring, we learn that Moraine comes to the two rivers because she heard a rumor of a soldier who took a child home that wasn't on her registry. She has a list of names of kids that were born on that day in that spot. She knows there's one that's in the two rivers. She doesn't know who it is because he didn't sign up for the registry, but she knows, and this is like just another name on the list she's checking off. And when she gets there, she notices the way the pattern moves around the boys. But nobody, there were no rumors about these kids. There's no reason for there to be rumors around these kids. Why is that the first line she says in the whole series? Okay, so I'm, I'm done with my rant. <laughs> Honestly, it's something I'd never thought about before, but that's a great point, especially because she then brings up later, like, oh, Nynaeve, you weren't born here. You were brought here. Like, if she was like, I know that there that a man adopted a baby and brought it to the two rivers, but she doesn't know the gender of the baby. Like it would make a lot more sense for although then she would easily be able to be like not Egwene, not Matt, not Perrin, because at least Egwene had 
and Matt are very clearly not adopted. Does it go back to that whole unreliable narrator shtick? Yeah, it could be. Like this is just changes Maureen's whole story. And like I understand there's gonna be changes, but it's a change that doesn't make any sense. I mean, obviously like Tam is the only one that left the two rivers, but we don't know that much about the men in the two rivers to know that Master Alvier didn't leave and come back and then the Queen was not born to her mother or parent. But Matt is clearly Matt is clearly his mom and dad's kid. I I I could even argue there, like, the reason that they're so abusive to him could be because he's not really their kid, and they are abusive. Yeah, they're abusive to all the kids, though. Yeah, but that could be, like, you brought some other woman's child home, and I hate you for it, and that's why I drink. Like, there's reasons that any of them could have been adopted. I I think if we had gotten a two-hour premiere, trying to get all of that in would make a lot of sense. But to be like, hi, here's our five main characters, and they're all adopted would be like a lot i i do think it's like a little cleaner to be like they're all severe you don't have to show all of that because we don't know it like we don't need to know all of that information it's not until we learn that rand is the one that's adopted like they don't have to be adopted and we're just trying to find the one that is and as far as we know until episode seven rand is not adopted either his mother died when he was young and was his mother. It's not until we learn what Tam revealed on Beltane when he was delirious that we learned that Rand was not born there and was adopted and was actually born on the blood snow. We still could have had that same reveal without this need for rumors. It doesn't make any sense. So like, that's just a rant, and I didn't want to get into it in the main part because it does go into details that you don't know if you haven't read New Spring. Yeah, and I think I think it is fair to not spoil New Spring for people. A thing that I did like, and something that was confirmed by Rafe and Sarah Nakamura, who is the book consultant for the show, who is adorable and has the most adorable dogs. You should go follow her on Instagram. So Rafe mentions the river being a reference to Sidar surrendering, and then we hear the river again with Egwene learning to channel. But it's also an Easter egg for how Nynaeve will break her block later, because she breaks it by surrendering in a river. And I was just like... <sighs> Like, mind blown. So I good. didn't even think about that, but that is exactly how she breaks it. How did how did she get survived being yeeted off of the <laughs> cliff? She channeled. She got so pissed that she was in the cold water that she channeled. She just got so angry. <laughs> Which, honestly, same. <laughs> I would be pissed, too. I love a lot of the map foreshadowing that's in episode one. So, like, I, I actually like that his dice, that he has bad luck with dice now, and that's, that's shown now, so that... When he has good luck later, it'll be like a clear turnaround for his character. Yeah. He's also the first character to interact with Pat and Fane, which I really like. Yeah. Like, he goes up immediately. I'm not sure I'm wild about him being a thief. And I, I get that they're making him, like, poor and that's... I think it then, like, sets up the dagger taking later. He takes shiny things so that he can sell them later for his family. Yeah. And there's a difference between taking a dagger from a ruin that nobody owns and literally picking somebody's pocket, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, he's the rogue character. So. That, I, I think this will kind of benefit him in the long run when he gets his turnaround. Yeah. Also, the women fighting the Trollocs is totally foreshadowing for the attack on Two Rivers. I am so, oh. Yes, 100%. That part in particular. Oh, my God, I was so excited. We won't see that until season three, but I cannot wait for Dice Congar and the other fierce ladies to come back. I can't wait to see her because I, I hope they make her the wisdom in the show. For the, for the two rivers, because once Nynaeve leaves, Daze becomes it, basically. That would be amazing. Is it Daze or Daisy? 
Um, I've always said Daze. I've always said Daze. It might be Daisy. I don't know. I always said Daisy. It could be Daisy. I always thought it was Daisy. It just spelled like a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I feel stabbed. Sorry. I was not prepared for that millennial slander. <laughs> it's not your fault your parents gave you your name. My name was just perfectly normal. Thank you very much. <laughs> just going to change your vowels. So that nobody knows how to spell your name because everybody has different vowels. Hey, my name only has one vowel in it, so. Um, and that's that. I mean, that's how Robert Jordan made his names, and that's how a lot of millennials were named by their parents. Which Robert Jordan would have been the parent of a millennial had he had kids. So wild to think about. Okay, so I'm gonna go into Layla and the justification for Layla and for killing her this way. As I've already stated, I don't agree with it, and I think it's bad, but. So explicitly, Perrin's inner monologue is like so inner that they do need some traumatic thing. They need a a traumatic killing in order to set up like him not wanting to use an axe specifically. And they also have the like tools versus weapons conversation from Layla later um, that Matt references in episode two. So they're definitely trying to build this like Perrin doesn't want to cause violence and he thinks he's a violent person. And here's an explicit reason why he thinks he's a violent person. All that being said, I think it was a shitty way to do it as we've already talked about at length, but that is like the foreshadowing rationale theoretically, but I still hate it. I think it's shit. Yeah. All of that could have been done with Master Luhan. Or Mistress Luhan, even, or an Abara sibling, or his mom, anybody yeah, else. An older sibling. Or younger. Younger would also have been just as gut wrenching. He kills his younger sister. Like, holy heck, that's going to really traumatize a kid. I'm trying really hard not to swear. No. Anyway, those are all my thoughts for foreshadowing in episode one, which I don't feel like has a ton. Yeah, there was so much taken up with the Trollocs on Winter's Night. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of Amazon's Wheel of Time Season 1, Episode 1. Join us next time as we discuss episode two. If you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to talk about, feel free to send us an email to producertvt at gmail.com. Or you can join us on carvalon.net. In our general forums, we have a special thread called Carvalon Talks pinned to the top of the page. You can also chat with us on carvalon.net's Discord server and the Carvalon Talks channel. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.